0: Romans chapter 11, verse 33, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's a beautiful reminder of the greatness of God. And that will be where we end our Bible study this morning. Today is part two of our study of Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 of our Bible study of the letter of Romans. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are considered some of the most difficult and confounding chapters in the letter of Romans and in the Bible. The first eight chapters of the letter are about how we are made righteous by God, how we receive salvation. The last five chapters of the letter, chapters 12 through 16, they talk about how people who have received salvation are to now live. And between these are the three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, which might seem a little out of place for some. Romans chapter 8 ends with those powerfully encouraging words about God's unquenchable love for us. Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and, um, and what He has done are God's children now. And nothing can prevent the Lord's ultimate good purpose for them from being fulfilled. Chapters 9 through 11 address what we would call the Jewish question. If the Jews have been God's chosen people throughout history, why have they in large part rejected the Messiah Jesus, refusing to receive the salvation that God offers through Jesus Christ? That is the quote Jewish question. Now, just by way of review because we got Halfway through these chapters last time in our study, we got through chapter 9 and halfway through chapter 10. And I want to uh, just review that as we step into the latter half of chapter 10 and on into chapter 11 so that you know we remember, okay, what we've talked about and where we're going. Well, Paul begins... By declaring his personal heartbreak over the Jewish people, refusing to believe in Jesus as Messiah. Given all of the blessings and privileges to them as God's chosen people, they should have been the most enthusiastic people to recognize and embrace the Messiah. Sadly, that has not been the case. Why? This is the question that Paul addresses over the course of these chapters. He starts by showing that God's word has not failed. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, he says. God chooses those who will be his people. Paul then gives two examples from Israelite history to show that God's sovereign hand was at work in selecting the lineage of the Messiah. The first example is from Abraham and God's choice of which of his two sons would be the son of the promise. The second example is the children of Isaac and Rebekah and which of their two sons are selected by God for the lineage of the Messiah. The choice was made by God before the children were born and had done anything good or bad. The choosing of one person over another, though, may seem unfair to some. So Paul next addresses the question, is God unfair? And he answers with a resounding, not at all. Part of the confusion for people is related to the huge difference between the way human beings see themselves and the way God sees them. Humans see themselves from a very human-centered point of view. We are the center of the universe. We are basically good, and we are entitled to the best that the universe has to offer. That's the way human beings see themselves. Now, in contrast, God sees himself as the center of the universe, and human beings are sinful rebels deserving nothing good. That's a big difference. This leads to the reality that God does not owe salvation to any human being. And that is a bitter pill for human beings to hear. And to swallow. Salvation is something that God gives as an expression of His mercy and His grace rather than it being a human right or something owed to us. The real surprise is not that God doesn't give salvation to everyone, but that He gives salvation to anyone. Some ask well, if God's sovereign will is always carried out, then why are we blamed for what we do? It seems that we are going to end up doing whatever God has determined we're going to do. God's sovereignty doesn't remove human responsibility. Rather, God's sovereignty operates in such a way that it allows human beings to make meaningful choices which they are responsible for, while at the same time God's sovereign will is ultimately carried out. Now, given our current understanding of reality, we don't fully understand how that is possible and how it is carried out. But it it happens that way. We accept this truth by faith, trusting that God knows better than we do about how things should work out. Now, although God is under no obligation to save any of us, he has chosen to save some of us, to save all those who turned Him in faith, trusting in the provision of salvation that He has made for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. But the Jewish people, those God chose to reveal Himself to in a special way, and through whom God brought the Messiah into the world, they have continued to pursue salvation through self-achieved moral goodness rather than trusting in God to give them salvation as a gift through the Messiah. There's a fatal flaw in their approach to trying to obtain salvation through good works, through being a good person, through self-achieved moral goodness. And the fatal flaw is this, is that no one can be good enough long enough to ever earn salvation— And if once earned, able to keep it. We need salvation to be graciously given to us, or we can never have it. And so God offers to do exactly that for us through Jesus Christ, to give us salvation. Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. God graciously, generously offers this salvation to all people, both Jews and non Jews. The promise is this everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is where we pick up our study now as we continue it. We're in Romans chapter 10 verse 14. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news." Commenting on Romans chapter 10, verse 13, which says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Timothy Keller writes, all that anyone needs to do then is all that anyone can do. All that anyone needs to do is all that anyone can do. And that captures the truth of the gospel in very simple terms. We cannot earn our salvation. It is a gift to be received from God by faith. All that we can do is call out to the Lord for salvation, and he amazingly saves us. Well, how can a person come to a place where they call out to the Lord. They call on the name of the Lord to be saved. How can a person come to believe in Jesus Christ? Well, as Paul says here in these verses, in order for a person to call on the Lord, they need to believe in the promise of salvation that the Lord offers through Jesus Christ. And and then the chain says, and in order for a person to believe in Jesus Christ, they need to hear about who he is and what he has done. And in order for a person to hear about Jesus Christ, someone needs to tell them about him. And in order for a person to tell others about Jesus Christ, they need to be sent out to tell others about him. And then he concludes that by saying, the person who tells others about salvation through Jesus Christ is a tremendous blessing. Those are beautiful feet that bring this good news of salvation. Well, who are the people who are to tell others about Jesus Christ? Is that something reserved for professionals? Nope. It's something all believers are to do. It is something all of us who have received salvation should share with others. We we don't have to be a professionally trained evangelist. We don't have to be an expert in all things to do with the Bible and Christianity. We don't have to be a good public speaker. We don't have to know how to defend the Christian faith against skeptics. The Lord used a donkey once to speak his message to someone. He can certainly use you and me. Because we are all a little bit more capable than a donkey. Right? I mean, you listen to this donkey all the time on Sundays, and the Lord uses him, so. Obviously, the more we know about the Lord and the better we know the Lord, the more effective we will be in the hands of the Holy Spirit. But these things are not required for us to tell others about Jesus. We are encouraged, though, to educate ourselves about what we believe about Jesus and why we believe it, so we are able to share with others about Jesus more effectively. First Peter 3.15, for example, Peter wrote, In your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. 1 Timothy 2.15, Paul wrote, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Well, not everyone accepts this good news about salvation through Jesus Christ. Not everyone sees the feet of those who bring this good news as beautiful. This is certainly the case in our own day, as we share with folk. But in the context of what we're talking about in Romans chapter 10 here, in Paul's day, it was true in particular in regard to the Jewish people. And so he continues in verse 16. He says, But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. So Paul asks, did these people not believe because they didn't hear? Maybe they didn't hear the message. And Paul answers, of course they heard the message. Paul quotes from Psalm 19.4 as his rebuttal to the claim that these people have not heard from the Lord. The Lord has spoken through the very creation itself so that all people are without excuse. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. This is the same argument that Paul gave in the first chapter of Romans to explain why God has every right to hold the whole human race accountable for their refusal to acknowledge Him as God. Romans 1.20, you might remember, he said, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Some express concern about people who have never heard about Jesus Christ. Will they have the opportunity to be saved? And that question is not directly answered here, but it is my belief based on what all that has been said here, that every person is given a fair opportunity to respond to God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. The particulars of how that's accomplished is not something that we're told. But we know that the Lord is just. We know that the Lord is gracious. We know that the Lord loves every person. We know that the Lord has revealed himself to all people enough for them to understand that he is present. And they are without excuse for refusing him. And in the case of the Jewish people, who Paul is talking about here they have even less excuse than other people since God spoke to them in a special revelation given to them, the Old Testament scriptures, which predict the coming of the Messiah and the salvation that God would bring through him. So verse 19, he addresses the next possible excuse. He goes, again I ask, did Israel not understand First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So did these people not understand what they heard then? Did they not understand the message about God offering them salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? And Paul rebuts that excuse, saying they did indeed understand. The Lord, he says, has revealed himself even to those who were not seeking him and those who didn't ask for him, namely the Gentiles, the non-Jews. In contrast to the Jews, God has held out In contrast to the Jews, God has held out his hand all day long, he said. He continually has made his appeal to them throughout history, and they have not responded because they are disobedient and obstinate. Israel's rejection, Robert Mounts writes, has nothing to do with any lack of opportunity to hear or ability to understand. It rested solely upon the nation's willful disobedience. They insisted on personal merit based on works to gain God's approval. All the time, they knew that God's requirement for righteousness is faith. Now, this should be a warning for everyone, all of us. If a person is determined to cling to the idea that they will get into heaven by being a good person, then they are going to be sadly disappointed. You cannot, I cannot, we cannot get into heaven by being a good person. That is an impossible route for gaining entrance into heaven. It is, and it is full of self-will. It masquerades as humility when in fact it is deliberate disobedience, it is a minimizing of our sinfulness, and it is a gross overestimating of our abilities. If it was possible for us to save ourselves, Jesus Christ would not have died for us. And this is the one lie that is continually passed around among folk. How do you get to heaven? Well, by being a good person. No, you cannot get to heaven by being a good person. I cannot do that. You cannot do that. Nobody gets into heaven by being a good person. Because there are no good persons. That's the truth of it, and it's, it's rough to hear, but it's the truth. This brings us to Romans chapter 11. And this chapter is considered one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible to understand, even more difficult than chapters 9 and 10. So it's been an uphill slog. We've been pushing, pushing, pushing. Through these three chapters. And because there are so many takes on what some of the details in this chapter mean, we're going to continue with the same approach that we have been using in our study up to this point, focusing our attention on the big ideas rather than getting lost in details. Okay. <laughs> because i want you to have the an understanding of the big picture and the big ideas and if you want to scrape and fuss with folk about the details you can do that somewhere else okay yeah. so verse 1 chapter 11 it says i ask then did god reject his people By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So he asks, has God rejected the Jewish people? And Paul says, absolutely not. I'm a Jew, and I have fully embraced the Messiah Jesus, and I am the preacher to the Gentiles. Obviously, there has not been a universal rejection of all Jewish people by God. Verse 2. God did not reject his people, whom he foreknew. No, don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So, Paul uses the example of Elijah to show how God has always reserved a remnant of people who are faithful to him and his purposes in this world. Elijah thought that he was the only person who was left who was faithful to the Lord among the Jewish people of his day. He believed everyone else had turned away from the Lord and embraced the idolatry of the pagan religion around them. He cried out to the Lord, saying, I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me! And the Lord responded to Elijah's fearful plea, telling Elijah that he had reserved 7,000 people in Israel who had remained faithful to the Lord and had not bowed to the pagan god Baal. Paul says the same has always been true, that the Lord has always reserved a faithful remnant of people, even in the worst of times. And so it's true now, although many, even most, have rejected the Messiah. God has reserved a remnant of Jewish people here who have embraced the salvation that God offers through Jesus Messiah. This faithful remnant of people are chosen by God's grace, as has always been the case, he says. See, what guarantees that there will always be a faithful remnant of people is not that there is always a group of hardcore, courageous, godly people who Trust and follow God, rather, that there is always the grace of God actively ensuring that there is a faithful remnant that is preserved. It is by God's grace that there is a remnant, not because there's always the faithful few. <laughs> We always like to make ourselves the hero. But as Paul says here, no, we're not the heroes. God is the hero. He is the one who ensures that there is a remnant. And verse 7. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain? The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. This is the same point that Paul made back in Romans 10 verses 3 and 4, Well, verses 2 and 3, I should say. The the Jewish people are very zealous for their religion, but that zeal has blinded them, he said. They are determined to establish their own righteousness, he said in 10.3, earning salvation through their own careful and diligent following of their religious laws and rituals. And so God gave them over to their self-will. They have been determined to earn their salvation through their own works rather than receiving salvation by faith as a gift from God, so God has given them over to what they are determined to have and do. And now they are blind and deaf to the gospel message of salvation by grace. Rejection of God leads to rejection from God. Though God executes it, it is the natural consequence of our choices and actions. Now, we should take this as a warning about being determined to want and do what is against the Lord's will for our life. We don't want Him to give us over to our desires. We don't want that. We don't want Him to give us what we want. We want Him to convict us of our sin, and then we want to respond to that conviction by repenting, by stopping what we're doing, by stopping wanting what is against His will, and instead living our life in obedience to Him. That is where true peace and joy are found, right? Verse 11, again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. So Paul asks, have these people become lost beyond recovery? And he says, not at all. In fact, the rejection by the Jews of salvation that God offers through Messiah Jesus has resulted in the tremendous blessing of salvation for other peoples, non-Jews, Gentiles. The rejection of the gospel by the Jews caused the gospel to be offered to the Gentiles who have received it enthusiastically. In the book of Acts, we can see this in microcosm in Paul's missionary journeys and work. You might uh, remember if you've read the book of Acts. But the first thing that Paul would usually do when he entered a new city is to go to the local Jewish synagogue, And begin telling people there about salvation through Jesus Christ. The Jews in the synagogue would reject his message. So then he would then go to the gathering of the local Gentile God-fearers and tell them about salvation through Jesus Christ. They would accept the message with enthusiasm and God would begin profoundly changing their lives. Paul then says here, if rejection by the Jews has brought such amazing blessing to the rest of the world, try to imagine, he says, what their acceptance will mean for the rest of the world. It will be beyond amazing. It will be amazing, amazing. It will be the beautiful culmination of our salvation, our glorification. Verse 17, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of Unbelief and you stand by faith, do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Paul is speaking directly to the Gentile believers here, the non Jewish believers now, and he's giving us a warning to not get a big head over being the recipients of God's salvation at the expense of the Jewish people. He illustrates his point using the imagery of a cultivated olive tree versus a wild olive tree. We Gentiles, we are the wild olive shoots who have been grafted into the cultivated olive tree where the cultivated branches, the Jews, were broken off of the tree because of their unbelief. He says, if if God didn't spare the cultivated branches... He won't spare us wild ones either. We need to remain humble and grateful for the kindness and the mercy that God has given us through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the Gentiles are not saved because they are better than the Jews in some way. They're not. They're saved because of the good grace of God. It comes back to God's grace for all people. 22. Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? There continues to be hope for the Jewish people. No one is irretrievably lost. God can easily graft these branches back into their own olive tree, he says. Now, considering what is taught in these verses that we've been reading here, it has always struck me as very odd that some non-Jewish people who consider themselves Christians have been hateful and prejudiced against Jewish people throughout the centuries. There's no place for anti-Semitism among Christians. Our Messiah was a Jew. There's... Our Bible is of Jewish origin. The God we worship is the same God that Jewish people worship. The Jewish people are from the cultivated olive tree that the wild Gentile branches have been grafted into. How can any hate toward Jewish people be justified by Christians? We should be thankful for the Jewish people and pray for them. 25, says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. It seems to suggest here that a time is coming when there will be a widespread changing of attitude among the Jewish people toward the Messiah, Jesus. Rather than pushing him away, they will embrace him and receive the salvation that God offers as a gift by faith in Jesus. Now, someone may ask, well, what about all of the Jewish people throughout history who have rejected Jesus before this revival takes place? What happens to them? I I don't know the answer to that question. I can only say that I believe God is and will be fair and just. Verse 32 captures the big truth that underlies all of this. All people, both Jewish and non-Jewish, are recipients of God's mercy. No one deserves salvation. No one can earn salvation. No one is owed salvation. Salvation is a gracious gift given to us by God through faith in Jesus Christ. See, all people are on equal footing of disadvantage before God. All of us needing His mercy. And God desires to give us all His mercy. He wants to give us mercy. He extends his mercy to all people. And this is the the, the, the grand idea that Paul is wanting his readers to get hold of. That it is the Lord who saves all people as an act of mercy. And so Paul As he reflects on how the Lord has arranged human history so that he can extend his mercy to everyone, he breaks out in worship. In verses 33 to the end of the chapter, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out! Who's known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God, that God should repay them. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the proper response to all that we have read in Romans 9, 10, and 11. There are some who accuse God of being unfair because he has chosen people to receive salvation. But those who judge God, they don't know what they're talking about. They're speaking out of term. They don't really understand so much as they think they do. And as Paul said in Romans 9.20, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? None of us understand all of the details and and the interworking of all that is talked about in these three chapters. We don't, for example, understand how God's sovereignty works while allowing human beings to make choices that they are responsible for. We don't understand how a person's choices and actions are are their own. And at the same time, they are a fulfillment and a carrying out of God's sovereign will and purpose. What we do understand is that God's grace and mercy are extended to all people through His Son, Jesus Christ, the source of salvation for all who put their faith in Him. And the proper response to this great truth is worship. Not all of our questions have been answered in these chapters. In fact, we've got a whole lot of new questions that have come up. As we've read these chapters and some of the answers that we have been given, we don't understand. But we know the one who does understand all things and we worship him. He is the one we trust in. We have confidence in him. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we acknowledge that we don't understand all of this stuff, Lord. And it, and honestly, more questions have been raised than answered for us in, in some of these places. But we trust you. We know who you are, Lord. We know your character. We know your nature. We know that we can trust you. You are good and gracious and kind and merciful. Your wisdom is beyond our understanding and we trust you lord you've given us reason to trust you because you gave your one and only son jesus christ for us to save us and so we we have confidence in you lord i ask that you bless and encourage each one here today and strengthen us in our and our faith and our confidence and our trust in you today. In Jesus' name, amen.